skeptics, mockers, and Jewish bystanders all wanted an explanation of the earth-shaking events surrounding the death of Jesus. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, presented evidence of the resurrection and ascension of Christ by taking them to Psalm 16. And that's exactly where we'll be today on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. I'm Steve Schwetz. Welcome aboard the Bible bus. And to get started, here's Dr. McGee's introduction about the wicked men in Psalms 9 through 15 and the root of the rebellion in Genesis 3. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Total depravity of man is a doctrine that is difficult to swallow because it's so personal. We like to speak of the criminal mind and the abnormal person in the objective case. It's always somebody else who's not in our crowd. We are never the villain. It's always the other person. We are the good guys. It might be well to pause a moment while we look at humanity under the Bible microscope and see God's estimate of man. If the popular philosophy of the world is true, then the human race is only twisted a little, which can be altered by the application of a splint of sociology. If society is only suffering from a slight cough, then Listerine is the remedy we need. The Bible presents no such shallow picture of humanity. He says they're all gone out of the way, and he means all. He says their throat is an open sepulcher, and their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. God asks the question, the heart is desperately wicked, who can know it? The Lord Jesus turned the x-ray on the heart of mankind, and over in the 15th chapter of Matthew, at verse 18, I'd like to begin reading there, and it goes like this, "...but those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed..." evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. Man has an old nature which is incurable and vile. And that is what God says in Galatians 5, 19-21. The works of the flesh are these, and I'm not going to read that ugly brood, but you read it, and you'll see that is God's picture of man. The old nature is beyond the panacea of human remedies. Man can no more cure humanity than you can sweeten a pile of manure in the barnyard by pouring a gallon of Chanel Number no. 5 perfume upon it. The Count de Maestre said, I do not know what the heart of a villain is. I only know the heart of a righteous man, and it's frightful. Where and when did man become such a creature with an old nature? Well, it happened a long time ago in the Garden of Eden. 
Man was the creation of a benign deity. Man was different from the animal beneath him and many of the created intelligences above him. Man could make a choice of good or evil. If there was no evil, then the test was farcical. Evil was only potential. It was disobedience to the express will of God that was evil and wrong. God zeroed in on one lone tree in the Garden of Eden. Man was forbidden to eat of it. The fruit was not poison. It was delicious. There was a vast number of trees to which man had access. Actually, the test was not that difficult. It was a matter of obedience to God. Satan's suggestion turned man's attention to this particular tree. The failure of man was an international crisis. It brought down the world upon him. He no longer lived in a world that he controlled and was friendly to him. The work of recovering man and turning defeat into victory was God's work. The skins to cover man were taken from animals that were slain. The blood was placed at the way of life. This was the first mercy seat, and you have the picture of it in Genesis 3, 24. So he drove out the man, and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. You see, that's what Moses put on top of the ark was the mercy seat. And it was this same picture. God marked out the pathway back to himself from the Lamb of Abel to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. The history of man's not pretty. It's the record of that old nature, which is the possession of every member of the human race. Man's history demonstrates the accuracy of all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Gertie the German wrote, I see no sin committed, but what I too might have committed it. The greatest fallacy of the human race is the absurd notion that man is capable of making a utopia or a Shangri-La or a kingdom of heaven here on earth. The liberal lost his faith in heaven above. So he's trying to make one on earth. He turned to Russia, China, Cuba, San Salvador, but they all have failed him. He is the man without a cause. An infallible society cannot be made by fallible men under ideal conditions. It is non sequitur. Poems are made by men like me, but only God can make a tree, and only God can make a good society. The condition of man is so critical that God has no program to renovate the old nature. His program is to give to man a new nature. You must be born again. At the same time, he does not remove the old nature. The old nature should keep man humble. The presence of the old nature is there to remind man continually of right and wrong. Heavenly Father, thank you 
for your life-giving word. We pray that many more will hear it today and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Now here's our study of Psalms 16 and 17 on Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now today, friends, we come to the 16th Psalm. And as we come to this great Psalm that is here, it is a Psalm of Resurrection. We have here the resurrection of the Messiah. It's quoted in the New Testament three different places, and very clearly so. You have actually in this psalm the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ, and even the ascension of Christ. And we're going to take that up as we get down in the psalm here. It is a great psalm and one that we ought to spend a great deal of time with. This was actually Peter's text, not Joel, but Peter's text was from this psalm, as we're going to see now in just a few moments. And we'll find that the apostle Paul, in what I think is one of the greatest sermons he ever preached, was in Antioch of Pisidia. He quoted from this psalm. And it's quoted in Hebrews 2.13 and again in reference to Christ. Now, that means that this is the third messianic psalm that we've seen. Psalm 2, we saw there the rejection of the king, but God's final purpose to put him on the throne. And that looks to his second coming. And then we have in Psalm 8, his humanity is presented there. That is the incarnation, and it's so quoted in the second chapter of Hebrews. And now we see him in this golden jewel. Let's call this psalm the golden jewel of David, because he's looking forward to the one that's coming in his line, the one of whom he could say, this is all my salvation. That is, when this one came, Now let's listen to the psalm. He says, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. This reveals, I think, the wonderful voice of the Lord Jesus Christ when he said he's come to do the Father's will, committed himself to the Father completely. He took this place of subjection down here purposely when he took upon himself our humanity. He assumed it. Now, little man down here, and we're pretty little, by the way, all of us are, little man becomes proud and tries to lift himself up. And I'm afraid today that we have men in high places, politicians, if you want to call them statesmen, you may, and men in science, men in education, and ministers, they almost take the place of God today. But I want to tell you, friends, we're pretty small potatoes here on this earth. We don't amount to very much. We were created a little lower than the angels. Now, he came down here and took that place. He took it willingly. He didn't have to take it. I have to take it. I'm glad I'm a man, but I also need to recognize what man really is. And then I rejoice what God's going to do for us and with us someday. And he says, Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. What a picture of the Lord Jesus. It was a picture of David. 
Oh, I trust it's a picture of you and me today. And I continue on in verse 2. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. Have you ever just ridden along in your car or walked on the mountainside or walked by the seashore? And when you did that, why, you could just look up and say, You're my Lord, (laughs) the Creator, the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. You're my Lord. Have you ever told him that, by the way? I've got a little grandson, and you can't imagine (laughs) what it means to an old man to have him crawl up in your lap and put his arms around you and tell you that you're my grandpa. (laughs) That's quite wonderful, my friend. And I have a heavenly father. And since he made us as he did in his image, I'm of the opinion that he likes for us and our Savior likes for us some time to come to him and tell him, you're my Lord. (laughs) And have you told him that, by the way? And don't tell him like the crowd that someday they'll say, Lord, Lord, didn't we perform mighty wonderful works in your name? He said, well, I didn't even know you. Oh, I want my friend, when I call him Lord, to mean it, that he is my Lord. Now let's move on. But to the saints who are in the earth and to the excellent in whom is all my delight. You see, he's the Lord to his saints down here that are in the earth. It doesn't extend to everybody as he makes it clear here. Verse 4, Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God, by the way. And, of course, you have to supply the word God. It's here in italics because it really means after another. There's only one God, but some go after another. And the word God's not here. It just means another they think is God. Their drink offerings of blood will I not offer, nor take up their names into my lips. What a picture this is. The pagan had those that he called his gods. And in David's day, it was Dagon and Baal. I get rather amused when I hear people say, I have no creed. That's what a man said to me. He said, I just don't believe in having a creed. I said, you don't? No, he said, I don't. Well, I said, that's your creed. He says, what do you mean? Well, I said, your creed is you don't believe in having a creed. You see, you can't help but have a creed. I used to be a church years ago in downtown Los Angeles. had painted on the side of it because it was in sort of a store building. And the whole side was exposed to the street. And they had this sign, no creed but Christ. Well, that was their creed. (laughs) They had a creed. They had a good one. But I think that that's oversimplification, and you don't really quite tell the truth. When you make a statement like that, you need to say, I think, a little bit more than that. Now, listen to him as he moves on in this psalm here. Verse 5, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance, and of my cup thou maintainest my lot. The lines are fallen unto me in pleasant places, Yea, I have a goodly heritage. Now, this is a very wonderful thing. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. Here is the one that came down to this earth, and he took this place down here, and he's walking in a world of sin and sorrow. Perfect stranger down here. 
and he rejoiced in Jehovah. There was peace and joy in his life. And he says, my portion and my cup. Well, what is the difference? Well, my portion is what belongs to me. That's mine. Whether or not I enjoy it, it's mine. And my cup is what I actually appropriate or make my own. You see at the table, do you mind if I refer to the little grandson? We put on his plate, that is his dish, what's his portion? He can have it. But very frankly, he scatters it around and doesn't eat all of it. He only appropriates so much. So he has a portion and he has a cup. The portion, he never consumes all of that, just what is in the cup. Now, there's many a person that's in this world. God is blessed with all spiritual blessings, but he doesn't enjoy them. His cup doesn't run over, doesn't have much in it. God wants us to enjoy life, friends. He came that we might have life. We might have it more abundantly. He said he came that their joy might be full, the fullness of joy. Some of us have fun a little time, but we don't have it all the time. We need to have it all the time. This is a wonderful psalm. Listen now, verse 7, I will bless the Lord who hath given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. What do you think about at night when you can't sleep? Well, this one thought of the Lord. Now, we come to that which is quoted in the New Testament. Will you note this? Verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh also shall rest in hope. For thou wilt not leave my soul in Sheol, neither wilt thou permit thine Holy One to see corruption. Now, this is the psalm of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen now to it. It is quoted first by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And I'm turning to the second chapter of the book of Acts. And this was the heart of Peter's message. Will you listen to it? For David speaketh concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he's on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, or in Sheol. And that was the Hebrew of it. It's Hades, as far as the New Testament is concerned. The unseen world can be the grave. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now listen to Simon Peter now. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, listen to Simon Peter, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, his sepulchres with us unto this day. And where Simon Peter was speaking, apparently in the temple area, he could point it up to where David's tomb was. He said, David's buried up there. This doesn't refer to him. refers to the Lord Jesus. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he'd raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, 
spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Now, there are several liberal expositors. Peron is one of them that says that this has no reference to the resurrection of Christ. Well, all I can say to you is this. When a liberal makes that statement, I have to put down by the side of it what Simon Peter said on the day of Pentecost, and I just can't refrain from asking this question. Simon Peter on the day of Pentecost saw several thousand turn to Christ and were saved, brought a revolution in the Roman Empire. And I just feel like saying to these liberals, how many are coming to the Lord through your ministry? How many are you really touching for God today? That's the real test. I'm taking Simon Peter's word for it. This psalm refers to the resurrection of Christ, and he's not through. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this, which we now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said, Unto my Lord sit thou upon my right hand, till I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now this is quoted as referring to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this psalm again is quoted by Paul yonder in the 13th of Acts. He goes back and, For thou wilt not leave my soul in Sheol, neither wilt thou permit thy Holy One to see corruption. So this is a psalm of the resurrection. And actually, what you have here is something I think quite remarkable. We have in verse 8, you have the life of Christ. Listen to this. I've set the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand. I shall not be moved. That, my friend, was the pathway he followed down here. It's the pathway I want to follow. Then you have in verse 9 the death of Christ. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoiceth. My flesh shall rest in hope. When he died there upon the cross, he knew that God would raise him from the dead. How's your feeling today about it? You know God's going to raise you from the dead. Then you have the resurrection of Christ. Verse 10, Thou shalt not leave my soul in Sheol, that is the grave, neither wilt thou permit thine Holy One to see corruption. Then you even have the ascension of Christ. Here, verse 11, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now, this is a glorious, as you can see, wonderful psalm here that speaks of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious, wonderful psalm that it is. And it is so used in the New Testament. The resurrection of Christ is prophesied here. This is a great messianic psalm. Now, we come to Psalm 17 and actually beginning with Psalm 16 and going through Psalm 24, we have another segment that belongs together. You know, in a song book today, they'll have songs of praise together, songs of repentance, Christmas songs, and all the different songs put together 
in certain sections of a songbook. Well, that's what you have in this songbook. Now we come to this section that ends with the 24th, and in each of these nine psalms, we find Christ in prophecy. And we also see that faithful remnant, as we've seen here in the 16th psalm. And they're both, I think, blended together. And the greatest of this section will be the 22nd psalm. Now, what we have here in this psalm is a prayer of David. And the question has always been, when was it written? And we are going to have to wait till next time to see that and also to listen to David's prayer and also a prayer that is very appropriate for us in these days. So until next time, may the Lord richly bless you, my beloved. I'm Steve Schwetz, and I'll meet you back here next time as we continue to make our way through the Bible. Until then, you can reach us at ttb.org or call us at 1-800-65-BIBLE. Now go with God today in the strength of His Spirit and the truth of His Word. grateful for the faithful and generous support of Through the Bible's partners, whom God uses to take the whole word to the whole world.